I uh, am so looking forward to sharing with you the Word of God this morning from uh, the text that was just read to you. Um, I'm uh, hopeful that our, our second path through these chapters has been an encouragement to you, and so that in understanding a little more theology, um, your understanding of God will deepen, of course, will uh, benefit your life starting spiritually in a great way. I'm, I'm really excited about our growth as a church in theological matters because uh, whether you know it or not, our relationship to God and understanding of Him it directly relates to our experiencing the things He desires for us, His, his joy, His contentment, His peace. So these things uh, bring me great hope um, and so I'm anxious, friends, to speak to you once again. But as we, as you know, studying through this, this uh, theology of the cross, theology is not about acquiring more information about God so that you can win some Bible trivia game. Um, but it's about knowing him intimately in order to experience the joy he intends for us to have as his people. Our pursuit of happiness is God's desire, believe it or not. Many times um, you, you hear from religious sources that a pursuit of happiness is a selfish thing and ought not to be part of the Christian life when in fact the opposite is true. Our pursuit of happiness is in fact God's desire, but ought not to be experienced outside of a pursuit of God. As John Piper has said, our problem isn't that we pursue happiness, it's that we don't pursue it strongly enough. We, we stop short of the source of happiness when we just enjoy creation or, or finances or friendships. We stop with God's gifts instead of moving past those gifts to the source of those gifts to God himself where true happiness is found. And so my goal in our study of theology of the cross is to expose more of God to you so that you'll know him more deeply, love him more fully, and enjoy him and all his gifts as he intended. This morning, Dennis mentioned the idea of the worship service. And you wonder why it's called the worship service, you know, the call to worship, uh, is a lot of times thought of it in the Christian mind that I'm, I'm coming to offer God something, like he deserves my glory and my praise, which he does, and so I'm coming to the worship service to serve God. That's not what it means. The worship service is intended by God so that he serves his people. It's the opposite. We, we come to receive blessing, to, to hear from God, to be served by God. And so this is what we do here week after week, to, to learn of God so that we can be all that we ought to be in Christ and enjoy him as we should. You can only truly enjoy something for what it truly is uh, in and of itself. You, you use things, if you use things, you don't really enjoy them as you should. God has built us... Um, to use the creation in order to enjoy him. God has simply given us all things to enjoy 
to draw us to him. Why do you think he's given you health, strength, vision, sound, all these things? It's so that you can run off and be selfish? No, it's so that you can be drawn to him in a deep and meaningful relationship. In other words, we are to look through God's good gifts in order to see and enjoy him more, not look at God's gifts as an end in themselves. A way to explain this to you would, would be this. These are awesome glasses. Um, I mean, look how nice they are. These are wonderful. There's some bronze stuff here on the side. These little nose rests seem comfortable. I'm really intrigued by these things. That's looking at the gift instead of looking through the gift and being able to see people instead of blurry blotches in the crowd. So as we consider the gifts God has given us, their intent is to be looked through to the greatness of God instead of be looked at for anything that they might be in themselves. This is what our study of the theology of the cross has attempted to be about. The Westminster Catechism, question number one, asks this, what is the chief end of man? You know the answer, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Most of us are familiar with that. John Piper switched this up a little bit when he said, we actually glorify God by enjoying him forever. So the Westminster Confession says glorify God and enjoy him. Piper says, well, we actually glorify him by enjoying him. That's how to bring most glory to God is when you're enthusiastic about him. When we see and understand God more clearly, we actually glorify him more. The beatific vision, that is the, the vision of God, seeing God in all his glory for who he is, is, is somewhat related to what I'm trying to communicate to you right now. It's, it's something that mankind has been drawn to since creation. A, a view of God, this is what Moses wanted in Exodus 33. Show me your glory. This is what the Apostle John said in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but, what, what, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we'll see him as he is, the beatific vision. We'll get a view, an unblurred view of who God is, and that will radically transform us to our core. And our pursuit through scripture, our listening to sermons, our reading Christian books is to show us more and more of who God is so that we can enjoy all that he intends us to enjoy. Psalm 27, 4, one thing David writes, have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He wants to come to church every day of his life. Why? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The, the, the view of God is what drew David to God. To be able to see him for all he is. He wanted to be completely satisfied in God. Moses in Exodus 33 wanted the very same thing. 
And this is the objective of any study, any pursuit of God called theology. It is to know and enjoy God. That, that's why we're passing twice through Mark 14 through 16. Some of you are old enough to remember that great movie, The Chariots of Fire, true story of the, the Scottish Olympic, Olympic sprinter. Um, he, you remember a scene in that story that impacted millions of people when he was talking to his sister about whether or not he wanted to go to China as a missionary immediately. And of course his sister wanted that, but Liddell was in training, Eric Liddell was. And his, his answer to his sister on why he couldn't go to China immediately as a missionary is profound and helpful in understanding what I'm trying to communicate to you now. Liddell said, God has made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. What's he saying? He's saying, I see God more clearly when I'm running because I know it's him who's given, given me the speed. I see God more clearly when I enjoy friendships with the people in this church because I know those are gifts from him. I see God more clearly when I can earn a living, when I can mow the lawn, when I can do anything that is a gift from God. I can see God more clearly. And so we do those things. That's the right approach to enjoying his gifts. We get this backwards so often. We find ourselves using God's gift to enjoy ourselves. Creation, friends, supply, strength, family, all find their end and terminus in themselves. It's like, hold on, Piper would say, push past that and you'll find the source of those things. Push past family, friends, creation, skills, all these gifts to their source. Their source is God. We just heard Mark 15 read to us concerning the narrative of Jesus' funeral. This is the next uh, point of theology that I want to bring to your attention. So that you can grow in your understanding of God, grow in your appreciation for his goodness, and enjoy him more as you continue to live your Christian life. The author of life we see in Mark 15, verses 33 through 47, was hanging dead on a tree. The author of life, dead on the cross. The light of the world, cloaked in darkness, he was dead. The Lord of all creation, the one who created all things, dead. This is what we just heard read. And so today I'd like to review Jesus' funeral from Mark's perspective and throw in some other ideas from other gospel writers and lay them before you so that you'll see the glory of God through the death of Jesus. Um, and, and they'll be connected to some things that we all like, like comfort and peace and hardship, times of trial, including our own death. And that's intended by God. So I want, I want you to... Um, listen actively this morning and, and see the hope that 
that you have and great encouragement you have in your Christian life and also um, not have to fear the day of your own death. All right? And I know uh, if we're a normal crowd, many of us fear that, that very thing, the day of our death. And so let's look at the funeral of Jesus more closely and see what we can gain from this. First, the elements of Jesus' funeral. What are some interesting elements of Jesus' funeral that we see here in what was just read for you in Mark 15? The first is this, the preparation for his funeral. The preparation for his funeral. Joseph of Arimathea was read about. He was a godly member of the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling body uh, of religious leaders there in Jerusalem. and he was a secret follower of Jesus Christ because he feared that he was going to get kicked out of the Sanhedrin if they knew about it. This is the one who went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' dead body so that he could bury it. And when Joseph approached Pilate, we read with this request, Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was dead, so he, he called for the, the centurion who was overseeing the crucifixion and discovered, lo and behold, Jesus was dead. Next, I want you to notice the casket bearers. And I'm going to kind of unpack these details in a moment, but I want you to see the interesting elements first, and then we'll unpack them. The the second here is the casket bearers. And, of course, there was no casket. Jesus' casket was a linen sheet. They put the body in the sheet, and one guy grabbed one end, and the other guy grabbed the other end, and they marched to the grave. That's what it was. We'll call it the casket bearers because that's what we're familiar with. So joining Joseph Joseph of Arimathea because he couldn't carry the body himself, according to John 19, was this fellow named Nicodemus. You remember him? So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, both secret followers of Christ for fear of the Jews, were the ones who were casket bearers for Jesus for his funeral. These men were notable, respected religious leaders. It's interesting for me, at least, to see uh, that the two secret disciples of Jesus who went to Pilate to get permission to take Jesus' body for burial were now openly demonstrating their love and commitment to Jesus Christ when those who earlier had openly supported Jesus and were, were bragging about their support for Jesus were now nowhere to be seen. The secret disciples came forth when times got tough, the open and, and supposedly bold disciples who followed him for three years disappeared. What do we make of that? I think it's a great caution um, for the strong saint, quote-unquote strong saint. It's so easy to look down our noses at those whose faith isn't so strong as our own, even if we don't do so unintentionally. It's easy to make muted judgments against weaker brothers or sisters because they don't fully understand spiritual things, because they don't or aren't as familiar with the church life and practice as we might be, or those weaker believers haven't really learned or applied important doctrine. What we see in our story here is that the weaker disciples, Joseph and Nicodemus, were the ones who came to the front when things got tough. The other ones, the inner circle, the long-standing Christian members of the local church disappeared. So with the Holy Spirit's assistance, I think we can learn from this 
that the weakest Christian may stand tall in the face of persecution or suffering. So, mature believer. What do we think of that? The third interesting element of Jesus' funeral was the funeral procession itself. The, the funeral procession was made up of these two men, these secret disciples, and a few women who had followed Jesus down to Jerusalem from Galilee. And it tells us, we read, there were two Marys. One was Jesus' mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other was Mary Magdalene, the person who was possessed by seven demons that Jesus healed. And then third was the mother of James and John, who Mark calls Salome. So, from what we can tell, five people in this funeral procession, procession Nicodemus and Joseph carrying the sheet of, that had the dead body of Jesus, and then three women. Interesting. Now the grave. What do we know about the grave? That is interesting. Um, well, it was an unused grave, brand new grave, and it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Two important things. Uh, it belonged to Joseph, someone else, in other words. It wasn't Jesus. He, he didn't own it. And this grave was unused. You may say, well, why does that matter? <laughs> well, prophecy tells us that he had nowhere to lay his head, not only in life, but in death. He used a borrowed tomb, fulfilling prophecy. And then, secondly, it was unused tomb for obvious reasons, right? If it had already been used, whose bones are these in here? would be the critic's question. I thought you said he rose from the dead. We dug this up 15, 20 years later, and lo and behold, there's some bones in here. Well, Isaiah 53, 9 says this, and they made his grave, speaking of the Messiah, they made his grave with the wicked, although he died with criminals and with a rich man in his death. So he died with criminals, but was buried in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was famously rich. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The fifth interesting element of this funeral uh, was the simplicity and solemnity of the funeral. It was the funeral of the king of kings. And there was five people in the procession. <laughs> there was no pomp, no open mic, no great banquet afterwards. No. Jesus didn't live this way in life, and so in death his funeral matched. It was simple, solemn. It was utilitarian and humble, which suited the Lord's person and ministry. Sixth, the wonder of his funeral. It's an amazing funeral. Consider what was taking place around his funeral. At the time, he was being removed from the cross. At the time, He's being wrapped in linen and taken to Joseph's tomb. It's marked by a heavenly response. It really did, in fact, ring the bells of heaven, this funeral did, even though there was, it was so lowly and simple, um, few attended. How do we know that it was marked by such a heavenly response? Well, first of all, during this time, it was just about the end of three hours of darkness, remember? Middle of the day, three hours of darkness which indicated God's frown at sin. Secondly, the rocks broke into two in the area, 
All the rocks, the big rocks on the area, all broke in two. God's wrath was being poured out on creation, specifically aimed at Jesus. Thirdly, the veil of the tomb, the veil of the temple, rather, was torn in two from top to bottom. What this mean? We've discussed this earlier. Access to God was now available to everyone, not just the high priest. Everyone could come to Christ, come to God through Christ. And then fourthly, and this is not recorded in all Gospels, but in Matthew, dead people came back to life in the Jerusalem and surrounding area. Dead people, been in the grave for a while, came back to life and walked around the city. What did this demonstrate? Well, it demonstrated Christ's victory over sin, that thing that put those people in the tomb. Christ's death is the thing that secured victory over sin. And to demonstrate that, God brought these who had died before the work of Christ on Calvary out of the tomb when the goal was accomplished in the death of Christ. So there we have some important, I think, observations concerning the funeral of Jesus. Now, I want to take you to the rationale for Jesus's funeral. Why a funeral? And why is it important? What can we learn theologically about this? What, how can the death of Christ and, and his being buried in a borrowed tomb bring us a clearer picture of God, a, a view of theology, a, really a, a beatific vision that will enhance our joy? That's what this point is intended to communicate, the rationale for Jesus' funeral. Um, consider these reasons. The funeral was intended by God to prove the death of Jesus, his son. The Jewish leaders of that day were quick to explain away the empty tomb by saying that Jesus' disciples came and stole him away. Remember that? The Gospels record that. Acts records that, but if that was their knee-jerk reaction to an empty tomb, what else would have come up um, if the funeral had been skipped? If there had been no funeral, or it wasn't recorded at least, what else would have come up by his critics? But Jesus' funeral nipped all those things in the bud. Jewish funeral preparations, listen, Jewish funeral preparations, including um, all the preparations of the body uh, was that they would fill the nose, the mouth, and the ears with spices. Literally open those orifices and dump in spices and then wrap the body in linen, which guaranteed the death <laughs> if it hadn't already happened. It would confirm to any honest person that Jesus was in fact dead. So the unarguable death of Jesus Christ is central to our faith, is it not? If we weren't certain of the death of Christ, we wouldn't be certain of our forgiveness of sin. We wouldn't be certain of the promise of heaven. See, so, so the death of Christ must have happened, hence the funeral, to prove it. His death and funeral were absolutely necessary and they did, in fact, take place. Secondly, second rationale for his funeral, to fulfill all the prophecies and types seen in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's filled with prophecies and types of Jesus' death and resurrection, isn't it? Jesus himself, in Matthew 12, 40, refers to one of the types 
as it related to his funeral. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Isaiah 53, verse 9, speaks of similar things that we just read. The third rationale for Jesus' funeral was to complete his humiliation. You remember that the humiliation of our Savior, our substitute, the second person of the Godhead was required in order to pay the, the immense, impossible penalty that was owed. Hence, humiliation for our Savior. Philippians 2.8 speaks of this. He became humble to the point of death, even death on a cross, it says in Philippians 2.8. And if, if there is anything that establishes the lowest place for any human, it's death, isn't it? That's the end. That's the lowest possible point for any human. It's the most humble state to experience as a human. No one in the grave is talking proudly about their accomplishment of dying. No. Jesus went to that lowest place of humiliation. Why? For our redemption. He had to be humbled to the lowest possible place any human could possibly experience so that God's wrath would be satisfied against him so that he could be our substitute. We think it was the height of condensation, condensation for Jesus to become, or God to become man, like maybe you and I becoming an ant. But if God is infinite, this act of becoming one of us and going as low as death, as all of his creatures do, was an infinite act of condescension. This condescension was something that was far beyond anything we could ever do. It's far beyond you becoming like an ant or you becoming an amoeba. It was an infinite condescension. Which is what satisfied the wrath of God. This ultimate, complete humiliation. So Jesus dove further down than just being a man, a poor man, a rejected man, a despised man, he went as low as possible and became a dead man for our salvation. The humiliation of the second person of the Godhead was necessary to satisfy all the requirements of God to pay the full penalty of our sin against a perfect God. And I think this should help us see how heinous our sin actually is. It's not a white lie. <laughs> no. Is an, it's an infinite offense against a perfectly holy God. He became, Jesus did, the antithesis of what he was in his essence. Think of this. Acts 3.15, Paul, uh, Peter was speaking when he said, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. You killed the author of life, the one who gave creation breath, the one who gave all things their existence, lying in the tomb, dead. Wow. And of course, the next rationale for the funeral was to conquer death. 
In order to conquer death, he had to be dead. So Jesus went to the grave so that he could, in fact, conquer the great enemy of mankind. That verse of meditation that you saw on the overhead earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There is a great enemy of ours. It's called death. But then verse 55 of the same chapter, Paul says, O death, after announcing the resurrection of Christ, Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Where are you now? Death. Christ has been raised. Christ has conquered death, in fact. So the reason we can be joyful at a Christian funeral um, is real. It's because we know that the grave isn't the last word about the person lying there. For the genuine believer, the grave is, is sweet and comfortable. It's why we can call our Christian funerals celebrations of life. Have you ever been to a non-Christian funeral and how morbid and sad it is? Christian funerals aren't like that. The reason this is so is because Jesus has been there, done that, and conquered. And as Dennis said earlier, we are in Christ. The words that God spoke to Jacob in Genesis 46 can be applicable to us as Christians. Listen to what God said to Jacob before he decided to go down to Egypt to meet his son. Genesis 46, 3 and 4. I am God, the, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, Egypt being a picture of death. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you back. <laughs> what a glorious promise. You will die, but I will be with you, and I'll make sure, certain, that I will bring you back. This is because we are in Christ. We will be raised with him also. So dear Christian, we do not fear death. God has promised to go down with us, to bring us up again. And how do we know this? We know this from the following lessons that we learn from Jesus dying and lying in that grave before us. Listen to these wonderful truths. The grave received Jesus, but couldn't keep him. The grave received him, like it receives all humans, but it couldn't keep Jesus. This was the type that Jesus referred to when he spoke of Jonah. Jonah was swallowed by a fish three days later, vomited up onto the shore. Jesus is the representative of everyone who embraces him and puts their trust in him. And as our representative, he goes before us. What happened to him will happen to us. Those who are saved are called, in fact, in the New Testament, the body of Christ, right? The body of Christ, mystical. So what happened to Jesus' physical body is what will happen to his spiritual body. Those of us who belong to the body of Christ will be raised like him. Like he was physically raised, we will be physically raised. So if the grave couldn't keep Jesus, then the grave won't be able to keep us, the body of Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the basis of our own resurrection, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. What's that mean? It's like this is the first fruit that shows up. There's going to be a lot of others to follow. Jesus came out of the grave first. We who are in him, we who have embraced him as our Lord and Savior, will also be raised. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who've died. 
The next lesson I want you to see from Jesus' death and internment was that there's no interruption of Christ's nature. Think of this. Have you thought of this? Have you considered the death of Christ? The union of Christ's physical body and his divine nature was not interrupted by his death, by his burial. <laughs> In the same way that our union with Christ is not interrupted when we enter the grave, we're not inter our, our relationship with Christ does not end because we die. No, Christ's dead body was the body of the Son of God, even in the grave. Certainly our bodies and our souls will separate at death, but spiritually, our union between Christ and our souls never ends. It remains strong as ever, even in the grave. Next, the next lesson we can see from Jesus' death and burial is wonderful assurance found in his dead body. Yeah, we gain wonderful assurance about our future, death and beyond, from the death of Jesus and his dead body. So before he went to the grave, there was certainty because of what was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would come out of that grave alive, right? Um, in the same way, there is certainty that we who are in Christ and die in Christ will also be raised from the dead as well. Listen to what Psalm 16 says, verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. He's not going to leave you there. <laughs> He's not going to leave you in the grave. No, that, that, that's the point of him becoming man. To, to save you from that end. To bring glory to himself through his power. The next assurance we see is that the grave has been transformed. The transformed grave. It's not what it used to be, in other words. Jesus' grave experience has forever changed the nature of the grave for those who die in him. It was once the dread of all mankind and part of the curse. It was the prison that held those who were in waiting for their day of judgment. That is not what awaits us. No. Now that, that Jesus has visited the grave, it is a place of restful transition for every child of God. We're not transitioning to judgment. We're transitioning to eternal, blissful life. So if we're bound for heaven, we don't need to fear the grave. Those who haven't embraced Jesus, though, as Lord and Savior, have much to fear, don't they? Listen. If you're sitting here and you have not given your life to Christ, listen. Or if you have friends and family that have not yet given their life to Christ, go tell them about Jesus again. Why? Listen to this from the New King James, Psalm 49, 14. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave or led to the grave, and death will feed on them. How's that sound? No, not good. There's something to fear about the grave if you don't know Jesus. But those who die in Christ, the grave is not evil or something to be feared. Psalm 23, one of our favorite psalms. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Even in the grave, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The fifth lesson that I want to share with you is that this provides Christ's comfort in death. 
Friends, if there are a group of people who don't need to fear death, it's us. It is us. It's reserved for us who are united to Christ. And how do you know if you're united to Christ? If you've sat here for weeks on end and yet don't know whether or not you're united to Christ, pay close attention for the next 30 seconds. Being united to Christ takes place at the moment you repent or turn away from your own sin, your own agenda, and turn to Christ. When you turn away and embrace Jesus by faith instead of embracing your own self-sufficiency, believing that you are a sinner, in fact, condemned to eternal separation by God or from God, and that you need Jesus, God's Son. So acknowledge that you're a sinner separated from God in need of salvation from Him, and it comes in the form of the person of Jesus Christ. What have you done with Christ? Have you embraced Him? Do you believe Him? Do you know who He is? Friends, Jesus is God's Son who came to earth to live the perfect life that's required of us, but cannot do. And then he died the death that we deserve to pay the penalty that we owe but can't pay. So by faith, believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that God credits Jesus' perfection to any who will simply humbly come to him by faith. Ancient burial customs included burying um, the riches of the dead with them. We read of this with the pharaohs of Egypt, King Tut, for example, the kings and leaders of historic peoples, even King David, evidently, was buried with 3,000 talents of gold and silver. And some guy named Hyrcanus dug it up and became rich. Of course, you know what 3,000 talents of gold and silver is. Three billion dollars in our day. Something that we wouldn't want to bury with our spouses in order to make our children mad. <laughs> Most of us wouldn't have that kind of money anyways to toss in our graves at our death. But if we die in Christ, friends, listen, if we die embracing, believing, trusting in him, connected to him by faith, that bringeth a comfort that far outweighs any earthly treasure that you live or die with. You know what Bill Gates is gonna be when he dies? Dead. That's it, nothing else. There's gonna be no U-Haul following hearse as we've heard before. No, what's your comfort as you look forward to that day of not breathing? Is it your reputation? Is it your wealth? What is it? There's only one thing that'll bring comfort. It's being connected to Christ. It's being in Him, trusting in Him for all things. Friends, God's covenant with us is eternal. This is the comfort that comes from Christ's death God's covenant with us is eternal. 
Matthew 22, 31 through 32 says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when Jesus said this, how long had these guys been dead? When God said this to Moses, how long had they been dead? See, the three men that Jesus mentioned had all died, and yet long after they were dead, God was still their God. That meant they were alive, not dead. (laughs) Their covenant relationship with God was intact, even after they died. Romans 14, 7 through 9, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die... We die to the Lord. So, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Do you hear what Paul's saying? We are just as much united to Christ in death as we were in life. Are you convinced of your salvation currently? If so, you should have just as much confidence that in death he will recognize you. Next, God's love for us is eternal. Not only is God's covenant with us eternal, his love for us is eternal. You've heard the verses. Let me read them for you. Romans 8, 33-39, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's those of us who have embraced Christ. That would be God's elect. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Well, only the judge could condemn someone, but here it is. The judge is saying, Christ Jesus is the one who died for you. He's the judge. More than that, he was raised for you, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you, who's praying for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a long list. It is comprehensive. Nothing will separate you from the eternal love of God. So death doesn't change God's love and commitment to you. Next, God's providence is sure. If God's covenant and love remain secure, even in the grave, then his providence that takes you to the grave remains sure. God's providence is what controls the day of your death, right? Yes, his providence is what takes you to the grave. We can be assured that we will not go to the grave one second before our scheduled time. This should give you a new perspective on the next few days of your life. Whether you're sick or old or not, your day of death is controlled by the loving providence of God. In fact, as Christians, we are invincible until that moment arrives. This should give us confidence to live full throttle for Jesus. Love sacrificially, give sacrificially, knowing that our times are in his hands. He will sustain us to that very moment and then take us through that moment into his glorious presence. 
Acts 13, 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So the, what I want you to focus on here is that David served the purpose of God in his generation. Are you? Are, are you living for Christ now? Trusting God for the remainder of your life and, and your death and burial and resurrection? What's your focus now? Making much of yourself or making much of Christ? God is the one who controls the times and seasons of our lives, so why not live for him? You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Next, God's forgiveness lives. God's forgiveness of our sins will release you from any and all guilt before death takes you to the grave. Friends, <laughs> you're not going to have to worry about waking up to the judgment seat if you're in Christ. No, we'll stand before Christ, but it won't be to answer for our sins. He already answered for those on Calvary, right? Yeah. We will enter the grave as free from sin as Christ himself. Isn't that an amazing thought? You will enter the grave as free from sin as Christ himself, the perfect one. <laughs> the gospel promises full pardon, doesn't it? No, it does. Next, and this may confuse you if you're following along in your bulletin, so you'll need to add this probably. Point E is the grave is not an enemy to Christ's people. The enemy is not, the grave rather, is not an enemy to Christ's people. It's the, it's the place of privilege. It's the goal of life is to go through the grave into the presence of our Savior. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 22, so let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Listen to what Paul, Paul's list. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Strangest list. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life. These are all yours. And then look at the next one. Or death. Death is yours. The present and the future is yours. All are yours as if these are gifts. And they are. Death is ours. It's intended to be a blessing for God's people. It, it's a day to anxiously anticipate in a good way. Not in a morbid way, a good way. It's a promise gift. Friends, listen, you will want, if you're in Christ, you will one day see your Savior face to face. What a gift. Next, God's son holds the, key of, the keys of death. God's son holds the keys of death. It says in Revelation 1.18, And the living one, I died, and behold, am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. The one who ordained the day of your death is the one who's standing on the other side of death with the keys to let you out. Open, come with me into the presence of your Lord. Friends, this theology of the cross, the death and burial of Christ, is intended to give you a view of God that encourages your soul. 
to make you run more deeply into him, to, to make you run past the gifts that he offers to the source of the gifts, your Savior, Jesus Christ. Pursue him more. Pursue happiness more and you'll find him. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we oftentimes get distracted by the gifts that you give, get turned away by uh, shiny things that attract our attention. We confess that and ask that you would help us to see beyond these wonderful gifts you've given to the source of those gifts, uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lived and died for us, who went to the grave to bring us hope, hope of resurrection, hope of eternal life with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.